Broadcasting live to the world now. It's Sheila Zelensky. This is a very sinister Luciferian eugenics plan. These spineless weasels preach what people want to hear. They replace repentance with dreams of the good life. Mindless minions. Dying daily, taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zelensky. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sheila Zelensky Show. Folks, my guest is the highly acclaimed prophecy author, Chris Putnam. Chris is the best-selling author of Petrus Romanus, Exavanicana, and he's had many television appearances as well as an expert commentator on the History Channel Countdown to the Apocalypse and Vision TV's Prophecy of the Future Revealed, and also multiple appearances on It's Supernatural with Sid Roth, the Prophecy in the News TV program, he's a regular on Coast to Coast AM talk show, and he's recently been on The Jim Baker Show with co-author Tom Horn. He teaches at various churches and conference like Prophecy in the News, and he joins me today to talk about his exciting new book, which is doing absolutely incredible. It's one of the top sellers on the path of the immortals, co-authored, of course, with Tom Horn. Chris, welcome to the program today. Hey, Sheila. It's great to finally get on the show with you. Well, first of all, congratulations on the wild success of your book. You both deserve it. And I really hope this is really that quintessential book, Chris, that really wakes people up. I know a lot of teenagers are even really interested in this book. And that's important for what's coming. People, if they're not waking up, they better start waking up. So back in 2012, for the new listeners, Tom and you revealed the obscure work of a Belgian Jesuit who predicted the papacy would change hands based on a 900-year-old prophecy by Father Malachi. Then following the release of your international bestseller, Exa Vaticana, you were inundated with requests from around the world to be interviewed on TV to talk about the shockwave sent through Christianity concerning the Vatican's advanced telescope, what's going on up there at Mount Graham in Arizona, where these Jesuits admit they're monitoring something approaching the Earth, and after which the Pope's top astronomer, and I found this so fascinating, took to the airwaves on the Vatican Observatory website to try and explain and rationalize the role in not only that Lucifer device at Mount Graham, but they're developing doctrines concerning extraterrestrial life and the impact it may have on earth i said to tom really chris and i'll say this to you the vatican really is kind of the biggest duck in the pond here isn't it it really is they position themselves 
to be the spokesperson, you know, about alien life and questions of that nature. Um, it's just really shocked a lot of people how openly they're discussing it and how they're, you know, they don't even really act like it's an iffy situation, whether they're extraterrestrials or anything. They just they think it's a matter of when rather than yeah, if. Yeah. You know, Petrus Romanus, we used Father Thibault's calculation and said the Pope was going to step down in uh, April of 2012. And, of course, that blew right by, and the Pope didn't step down. And we thought, you know, maybe that was just wrong, and we'd given up on it, basically. And then the following year, he announced, he did step down, and then he revealed that he'd actually done it exactly that time, but only to a private group of insiders. And, you know, they just didn't tell the world about it until uh, the next year. And so it, it turned out it was right. It was kind of amazing. Um, we didn't expect any of that. We didn't plan any of that. That's just the way it, it laid out. And then, you know, a lot of people started asking us, what do we make of the connection between the Vatican? They keep making all these statements about ETs. And, you know, they had at that time, uh, Corrado Balducci was a, a monsignor from the Diocese of Rome, good friend of the Pope, uh, who was going around speaking at UFO conferences. And you know, he went on Italian television and said that he knew, you know, for a fact that aliens were real. Right. Um, and, you know, with no, you know, no hedging at all, just that, like, he, he was just aware of it as a brute fact. And, of course, he didn't tell us why, other than just the same old evidence that everyone else has seen from the UFO community, which, you know, a lot of people don't find all that compelling as far as, does it prove that there's space aliens or anything coming from other planets, which is what they claim. And, you know, that's what we dispute. We think there is something going on with all that stuff, but we think it's evil spirits that have always been here, and they just stay two or three steps of the technology of the day, and they just give a cover story. You know, back you know, two, three hundred years ago, they were probably um, fairies and elves in the U.K., there's all kinds of fairy lore about changeling babies and you know them stealing people at night and things like that. So it sounds very much like the abduction phenomenon that we have today. But today it just goes under the guise of space aliens. So we look at that same evidence that Balducci was looking at saying that they're really here and they're visiting us. And we say, no, 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 no. This is what you're supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be a demonologist and an exorcist. Um, you know, friends of mine in ministry have had a great deal of success in getting rid of it by invoking the name of Jesus. Now, it doesn't make sense to me that advanced aliens coming from some other world, you know, are recoiling at the name of Christ <laughs> in someone's bedroom, you know, molesting them in the middle of the night. That sounds like a demon to me. And, you know, I think the phenomenon definitely falls right in line with medieval accounts of demonic succubus demons, incubus demons, things of that nature uh, that are coming into people's homes. That's what the abduction phenomenon is yeah. mostly about, I think. I really do believe that. Definitely. Uh, demonism involved in it. And, um, you know, that's where we stand with that pretty much. We just don't find the evidence compelling at all that there are any real aliens. That doesn't mean real aliens don't exist, but the, the sort of position the Vatican has taken, I think, is absurd because they really adopted a naturalist-type worldview, you know, where they believe that, you know, enough empty planets that it's a waste of space or something if God didn't put people on them. And, you know, that's kind of a secular type argument because a being without limitations, which is what we believe God to be, you know, he has no limitations, he has no need of anything, he's eternal. Um, the concept of wasted space is not even, doesn't even apply to him. I mean, he could just make another universe like this if he wanted and put just as many empty planets on it if he sought to, and it doesn't affect him at all. There's no such thing as wasted space for an eternal, omnipotent God. So 
just the idea that that argument is compelling to someone you know who claims to be a priest, a representative of God, is kind of odd to me because they really have a secular mindset. You know, the way that Tom and I have chosen to to handle the subject is that we don't know if God has created other beings, and, and we're not even trying to say that. But what we're saying is that what we've seen from the UFO phenomenon and from people who claim to have contact with them, it's hard for us to believe that aliens are flying across the galaxy to debunk Christianity and promote New Age religious <laughs> ideas. You know? yeah. And um, that's what's going on. These guys are teaching something very much in line with Eastern spirituality, with Hinduism, Buddhism, a very one-world, oneist type of cosmology, you know, where everything all is one, you know, and it really discards the notion of ontological evil. That's the problem with those worldviews where all is one and all religions are pointing to the same God and everybody's all singing Kumbaya together. The problem is is you can't account for evil that way. Once all is one, that means evil is one with good, right? So how do you have both of them? And how do you explain things like the Holocaust or, you know, 9-11? Things like that don't fit real neatly into an all is one, all is hunky-dory you know, paradigm. It just doesn't work. It doesn't describe reality. And so the Christian worldview makes a lot more sense out of the reality that I observe. And, you know, I do see, you know, destructive forces that are plotting against humanity. And I see the Bible prophecies, you know, talking about a one-world state and a one-world religion coming to pass. And I see the pieces laying down very neatly for that all to happen. And the technologies are being developed to make it possible to control how everyone can buy and sell. You know, the sorts of technology you've spoken of, you know, with the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13, that, you know, he would give everyone a mark representing loyalty to him, and through that he would control whether you can buy or sell, whether you could participate in the economy. You know, 50 years ago, that wasn't even really possible. But today, there are competing technologies for how you could pull that off. And, you know, they have tattoos now and everything for it. So it's just amazing to me how all this stuff is laying out and becoming more and more feasible and more likely, really. I mean, I think the days of cash are numbered now. We've seen uh, the elite reaching out and, you know, talking about getting rid of cash and making it all electronic. And uh, it's falling right into the template of biblical prophecy. So I think that uh, we have the right worldview and the secular world doesn't. And the Vatican, unfortunately, is buying into the secular world's worldview, and they have a really skewed version of how they view these prophecies and the Bible. I don't think they, they hold it at high enough esteem. So that's really the underlying problem there, basically, in following the world. So On the Path of the Immortals is a, is a new book. We're really looking into this idea of divine beings, uh, angels, demons, but they play a big part in end-time prophecy, and then we also are looking into the idea of extra dimensions. So, you know, immortal is a term that basically means exempt from death or imperishable. You know, and this is not really the same as the term eternal. A lot of people mix these up, and a lot of dictionaries even don't make it clear. But eternal is the same thing as having an infinite duration. And the, really, the big idea that you need to, to keep in mind is immortal has a beginning. Immortal is born, but doesn't die. But eternal wasn't even born. It's always been, okay? 
So eternal is quite a bit different than immortal. So think about God, the creator, as being eternal. He's always been. There was never a time ever that he wasn't. I mean, he just he's outside of time, even, is the way some people choose to look at that. Now, the mortal is a being that he created, so it has a beginning. And, you know, but it's not it's supposed to die. And you look in the Psalms, it talks about the angels and the hosts of heaven, and it says he established them forever and ever. That's in Psalm 148 talks about the creation of the beings we call angels. Now, but notice it says, praise him, all his angels, praise him, his hosts. That word host is sabah in Hebrew. That's kind of a, it actually denotes a military type of situation. So, you know, not all of these immortal beings are really what we call angels. This is where I kind of get irritated because people have turned the, the term angel into a type of being. You know, so we call almost all the beings on the other side angels. And a lot of people even would assume that demons are just fallen angels, so they're really just all the same thing. And this is not the case at all. There's a variety of different kinds of beings. Angel comes from the Greek word angelos, and it means messenger. And it could be a human or a non-human messenger. But it's the sort of guys that you see like when the stone rolls away from Jesus' tomb and there's a shining man standing there, he looks human, though. And, you know, like the guys that visited Abraham and ate with him, they looked human, and they ate food, and they were solid. So this is the beings that the Bible calls angels, and they're messengers, and they bring messengers from God to men. Now, there's also all kinds of other weird-looking things, like this seraphim, which are a serpentine or reptilian in appearance, and they fly around the throne room of God, have six wings and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Right, seraphim. Like as in what Isaiah called the fiery, flying, serpentine-type beings. That's right. Yeah, the same term uh, in a different context later, like in Isaiah. If you look in the throne room, in the early chapters of Isaiah, in throne room descriptions, it just calls them seraphim. Now, if you look later on in the book of Isaiah, you'll see these guys called flying, fiery serpents. And it's the exact same Hebrew term, seraphim. It's just in the beginning chapter in the throne room of God, they don't translate it. They just sound it out in English. So they write seraphim. But, you know, later on in the book, when it's in the ruins of Babylon or, you know, like in some sort of haunted context, they call them fiery flying serpents for the exact same term. So the only difference being is that they just describe what they actually are uh, more when they're fallen, I guess. Sixth wing beings are flying around the throne of God, but they are. And so are the cherubs. They're there, and they have four faces. You know, they have animal faces and human faces and the round wheel things in Ezekiel and all that. You know, those are are beings as well, and they're not angels. They're kind of scary looking and confusing (laughs) by the description. So, you know, I don't think those are the kind of things that God sends as a messenger. You know, in the book of Daniel, we see Gabriel, and he's a very shining, luminescent man. And he still kind of scared Daniel. But he was a messenger angel, very powerful. Of course, the angels that went into um, Sodom and Gomorrah, the destroyer angels, um, and perhaps that was why one of the reasons God sought to destroy that city specifically, they had sought uh, union with angels. I've been looking into it myself. Uh, what was going on in Sodom exactly? Uh, it's hard to say, but you know, God wiped it out. One of those angels was able to wipe out that whole city. So it shows you how powerful they are. You know, 
one of the battles in the Old Testament, 186,000 sleeping Assyrians were killed in one night by a destroyer angel. That's when they were encircled around Jerusalem for a siege. 186,000 troops, one night, this one of those guys did that. So you don't really want to mess with them. <laughs> so, but these, these immortals are powerful beings, and they're really forecasted to play a big role in end-time prophecy, you know, the Battle of Armageddon, all this. That's not just a human war, according to the prophecies. There's going to be a lot of supernatural beings involved in that. And, of course, that's supported in um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the War Scroll, and things of that nature as well, speaks of all of these hosts and armies, supernatural armies as well. And, and you know, it's really amazing, you know, you talk about these fiery flying serpents, and what's always fascinating to me, Chris, is the Inca, the Aztecs, and the Mayans, all their drawings depict plumed serpent deities, and what's fascinating my family is Blackfoot, and when you go back to our oral traditions many, many years ago, same with the Navajo, same with the Apache, there's these depictions, and which is really a good segue to what you saw in Sedona, but there's depictions of these portals, there's these six-toed footprints, the giants, these, these reptilians with halos, and think about this, the Red Sea Scrolls were not available to my ancestors. Right. No doubt about it. It is really odd. That's that's what Tom found as well. You find a lot of the you know indigenous people to the Americas who were here at the same time that this was going on in Israel with the Watcher Angels and the Nephilim. You find the same sort of thing in the old stories of the Indian tribes here in America with giants, like you said, the plume serpent deities. I think that is just a a dead giveaway, really. I mean, I, I yeah. wrote a, his, a history chapter later in the book where I traced that through three of the major Mesoamerican um, incarnations, the one in Peru, which was the Amaru, right? And then the Maya and the Aztecs had, you know, a plume serpent deity. And it really meets the basic description of the fiery flying serpent. Like you mentioned, it, you know, it sounds like a fallen seraphim. Yeah, so we have holy seraphim in the throne room of God. So that would definitely put them in the fallen category, I believe. And it really fits the paradigm that we've discussed in all the books that, you know, it's this divine council theology based on uh, Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 81. It talks about God having a divine council. And at the Tower of Babel, when he confused the languages, he didn't just confuse the languages so he split the people up. He actually disinherited the 70 other nations in Genesis chapter 10. There's 70 nations other than Israel that God divided the world up into. And the idea is that he put one of these divine beings over each of them. And um, some of them really mismanaged their people. And if you read Psalm 81, it says that God stands in the divine council and he passes judgment over the little G gods. It actually uses the word gods. And he says, you know, you've mistreated your people, you've abused them. And because of this, you're going to die like men, okay? Now, that pronouncement by God to these other gods doesn't make sense if they're humans. And some people are so afraid of polytheism or something that they're afraid to, to read that psalm as, as it actually reads. Why would it even be meaningful to tell a man that he was going to die like a man? Uh, duh. You know, the only way that makes sense is he's given that sentence to an immortal, 
who wasn't supposed to die. He says, you know, because you've done this, you're going to die like men. You're going to fall like any other prince. And that's what he tells them. So it's really clear to me that God divided the world up and that these uh, other immortals took advantage of it and they became gods in other religions. And that makes sense to me how, you know, like the Hindus have 30 million different Hindu deities. And I don't know how many of these fallen angels there are, but I suspect maybe, you know, some of them have multiple identities. These are lying beings. They, they don't tell the truth. So they probably play out several different characters. Who knows uh, how that works? But I suspect it's something like that, that they don't have any problem morphing into who you want them to be if it serves their purposes. So these are the immortals. You know, Bible prophecy talks about powerful angels being released and returning to the earth during the end times. There's a war in heaven described in Revelation chapter 12. It says Michael and his angels fight the devil and his angels, and then they win. And as a result, Michael casts the devil and his angels to earth for a very short time. And I think that's really the tribulation period. And it says, woe to you, inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come to you and he knows his time is short. Now, there have been theological arguments about that passage when it is, but I think it, it really only fits the end times, the tribulation period for that short time where the devil is judged and sequestered to the earth. And when, when that happens, you know, you're going to see an explosion of these immortal beings. And then the other part that we wanted to handle is really this idea of gateways and portals between the earth and the heavens. I think this is absolutely a biblical idea. You know, it does get a lot of play in the occult world, and the metaphysical community talks about these ideas as well. But, you know, it doesn't really discount the fact that they are in the Bible. And we see a lot of things, you know, like in Jacob's Ladder, where Jacob has a dream, and he sees angels ascending and descending. He calls this place Bethel the gate to God, basically. Really, it was the house of the gateway of God, really. And so somehow Jacob thought that there was some sort of portal, but he actually accessed that through a dream, which makes it even more strange in a lot of ways. But the idea of heavenly gates is very much throughout Scripture, and, and you see it again and again through the Psalms. You know, we noticed that, you know, the idea of, like, the, the portal to the abyss being opened in the book of Revelation, the fifth trumpet judgment, when you know, he opens it up and these locust-like creatures come out. Well, in Revelation pre- 9 talks about the Euphrates River, the angels taking out one-third of mankind, the four angels that come up out of the Euphrates River, which is kind right. of similar to the Islamic Mahdi, the whole Islamic Antichrist theory, isn't it? Well, it kind of beckons that, because the Euphrates River you know, is right there, coming out of Iran, running down toward Egypt. So it goes right off the—every country it's going through, there are these Muslim nations that, you know, are hostile to Israel right now. And, you know, how that might all play out together still remains to be seen, but, you know, it's no accident that these are all Israel's enemies that we're, we're dealing with right there. Exactly. One of the passages, Chris, you talk about that gets a lot of interest because it really does imply, it touches on the idea of the return of the Nephilim. Scriptures refer to a time when the Nephilim will be appearing back on the earth. I want you to get into the book of Isaiah, what it says there in 13. Obviously, you're very astute at Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek. It really seems to imply, if you read it in the Septuagint, which is the 
ancient Greek version of the Jewish scriptures. That is, it's a translation of the Hebrew Bible by Sir Lancelot Brenton. Break that down for us, Isaiah 13, where it really implies that we will see a return of the Nephilim. The book of Isaiah, uh, in the Septuagint version of the Bible, which is the Greek translation that was done around 300 B.C., it was started, and they did the Torah, and they did the rest, and they did all the prophets. And it wasn't completed till around the time of Christ, really, in the first century A.D. But it is the Bible that Jesus and the disciples mostly read from. You can look at the quotes in the Gospels when they quote the Old Testament. It usually follows the Septuagint version uh, rather than the Masoretic, which is what our Old Testament translations are mostly based on, the Masoretic tradition. The thing that's interesting is that we don't have a copy of the Masoretic Bible until like 1000 A.D., 1,000 years after the birth of Christ. But we have older versions of the Septuagint going back um, much closer to the time of the text. And so I think it a lot of times will reflect the ancient worldview more accurately than the Masoretic. And then also, if you think about it, 1000 A.D. is after Jesus, so the Jews had some vested interest in changing some of the prophecies to not sound like Jesus, because they were already reacting against Christianity by that time. So, yeah, I think for that reason, the Septuagint is also valuable, because it proves what was prophesied about Jesus way before he actually appeared on the scene. So it's it's valuable for a lot of reasons, but in that chapter 13, it talks about the, the destruction of Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, and you know, of course, this matches up with Revelation chapters 17 and 18, which talks about mystery Babylon being destroyed. And then it also matches Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51, where it talks about Babylon being destroyed. And the thing that people that study prophecy have noticed is that, you know, it's really hard to argue that Babylon was ever destroyed physically the way that these prophecies predict. Because when the Persians sacked Babylon, they didn't sack it. I mean, they snuck in. What happened is Cyrus dammed off the river like a mile upstream, and the river went under, you know, the, the stone fortress of the castle. And so, you know, they're having a party, and they're getting drunk, and not even paying attention to the walls outside the city, and he dams up the river and marches his army right down the dry riverbed right into the city as the river dries up. So he took it over without a battle, and he didn't destroy anything. And you know, when you read these prophecies, it sounds like the whole city is, is sacked, like completely destroyed in warfare. They don't really match up. So for that reason, people see that there's going to be some kind of end-time Babylon that these prophecies seem to uh, forecast. Now, in chapter 13, it's talking about the destruction of this Babylon, and it says, lift up the gates, all you rulers, giants are coming to fulfill my wrath. For behold, the day of the Lord is coming, which cannot be escaped, the day of wrath, the day of anger, to make the world desolate. Now I'm going to just paraphrase a little bit. In Babylon, shall be when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it shall never be inhabited, and monsters shall dwell there, and devils shall dance there, and satyrs shall dwell there. And a satyr is a half-goat, half-human demon type being. So it's literally talking about this place being uninhabited, dwelt by monsters, demons, and like these half-human, half-goat demons are dancing around in, in this area. <laughs> you know, Saddam Hussein actually tried to rebuild Babylon. So he started rebuilding some of the buildings and things like that. So, you know, I don't know if it, it's true that it shall never be inhabited and monsters shall dwell there. I don't think that's ever really happened. Well, it's exactly kind of interesting that Nimrod, you know, he's kind of synonymous 
with the Tower of Babel. But what's interesting is that he began to become something different there, a giborim. Could that signify something else? Well, in the Septuagint, when it talks about Nimrod, um, in Genesis 10, 9, 10, 8, 9, says, 10, 8 in the Septuagint says, Cush begat Nimrod. He was the first to be a giant on the earth. Okay, that's verse 8. Yeah. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord God, because of the evil stay. And Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So it really says he was the first to become a giant. That, that's actually the literal translation of the, of the Greek to the English. It uses the Greek term gigas, which is giant. So he became a giant, is the idea that Tom and some others have put forth. That maybe there was something that allowed him to become a Nephilim somehow. And the text does support that notion. People have different looks at it, but I, I think that the term giant very well could mean that, that he had some sort of um, Nephilim DNA or something like that. It does fit the text. If you go to Numbers 13.33, there right. we saw the giants. If you look up that word there, it's kind of interesting. That word in Hebrew has a strong correlation with the Koine Greek term, what you're talking about there. Uh-huh. It does. In Numbers, it talks about the term, the Nephilim, and it says they're the, the Anakim, or the offspring of the Nephilim. And the Anakim, of course, is the tribe that was there when Moses and then went into the Promised Land. So, yeah, the text definitely says that there were giants before the flood and after the flood, and that's kind of created some controversy. Yeah, where did they come from after the flood, if the whole reason for the flood was to wipe them off the face of the earth? Well, apparently, you know, the Watcher Angels must have done it again, is all I can say. I think there was some kind of second involvement with humanity, and they laid down basically a, a minefield in the Promised Land. You know, while Jews were in Egypt, you know, being slaves to Pharaoh, the Watchers had a field day in the Promised Land, creating all these giants to surprise them when they finally did get there. Right. And so that was really the reason for the wilderness wandering. You know, if you don't have a an accurate picture of Genesis six, because you know some pastors are afraid of the idea that these immortals propagated with humans and had these giant offspring that bothers a lot of people. It makes them uncomfortable. But it's definitely what the Bible says. It, there's really no doubt about that. They're afraid to touch this topic about what's coming upon the earth. In order for something to come upon the earth, wouldn't it have to be below the earth? And what's so fascinating is Jesus in there in Sarah Philippi talks about the gates of hell. Jonah 2.6 talks about the city of gates and the book of Numbers. All throughout the book of Numbers, we see the earth opening up, swallowing alive the members of Korah. So when you really begin to sort of tie these together and then you think about mountains and the significance, well, the fact that the Vatican takes such an interest in what's coming upon Mount Graham, the most revered and sacred mountain of a lot of indigenous people, Mount Sinai we see, Mount Olives, Mount Hermon. It all seems like there's a tie-in between gates, portals, and mountains, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the concept of you know high places and, and holy mountains is ubiquitous throughout Scripture. And, you know, God meets Moses on the mountain the very first time from the burning bush. It's a very commonly held idea, and all of Israel's neighbors held similar ideas about these areas. And so the idea that there are areas where you interact with that are portal-type areas to the other realm is absolutely, uh, I think, a real notion. It's, it's found in almost all religions. The thing that uh, I found really 
fascinating is that if you look at some of the oldest descriptions of God's appearances, like in the book of Job, it says that he spoke to Job out of a whirlwind. Now, one of the first chapters that I wrote in, on the path of the immortals was called The Science of Portals. I really wanted to, to examine this concept of portals and interdimensional travel from a real scientific point of view to see what they think. And they think it's absolutely feasible, and they're looking for it, um, these kind of things. Uh, black holes, Einstein, Rosen, Bridge, Albert Einstein and his um, student Nathan Rosen proposed that you could hook up two black holes uh, with a wormhole and travel between different places in time, uh, places in the universe, inter-universe travel, and then actually between two separate universes that such a thing exists. Now, of course, we do believe in the heavenly realms, and we believe in the, the land of you know, the departed, like Sheol, is the Old Testament underworld. Uh, in the New Testament, it was Hades, same idea, the underworld. Now, some would literally put that in the belly of the earth. Uh, others would probably put it in a spiritual dimension of sorts. I think it could be some of both, to be honest with you. I think there's room for like both of those ideas, um, that it, it, it is sort of both, maybe. But the idea that there's a, you know, a heavenly realm or even more than one, uh, second heaven, third heaven, that type of thing appears. And some of the older texts would even have seven heavens. That's a common idea, uh, not necessarily in the Bible that way, but there's evidence that they had heard of that, but I don't know if it's true. Paul does speak of the third heaven, and he's not even sure if he left in his body or not. So right. even out-of-body out travel is there in Scripture, which is, you know, the same sorts of things that we see these other people talking about with portals and things of that nature. You know, are they physical or are they spiritual? I mean, Jesus, when he ascended, was in a physical body, you know, his resurrected body, but he was definitely physical, and he had wounds on him even. So when the ascension happened, that was not, you know, just a spiritual thing. He physically flew up through the air and then somehow translated into the heavenlies. Now, I don't know how that works, but that, he went through a portal. <laughs> and he didn't just go up into space. You know, it's not that he went far, far away to a planet we can't see. He somehow translated into a different, a whole different universe or something. It's kind of the way to think of it. I, you know, it's a different dimension, perhaps, is another way to put that. You know, a different three-dimensional universe. I tend to think of it that way, that you're, it's interdimensional travel more than any kind of physical travel. Well, and you have to kind of wonder, when you talk about black holes and wormholes and talk about all this stuff, it kind of makes you wonder, Chris, what these guys are doing over at CERN. It almost seems like they're trying to recreate the Big Bang over there. Well, yeah, they've openly stated that's what they're trying to do. You know, the Big Bang, I, I think it supports our worldview because... Uh, of the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And that's a really basic argument that proves God exists. It's really the argument from a first cause, or as Plato put it, the prime mover. And it's this idea that everything that begins to exist has a cause. And I think that's uncontroversial. If something begins to exist, something caused it. And that's how science works. Science is a search for the causes of things. And so everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, the Big Bang Theory is, you know, the scientific idea that the universe began to exist, and that's where all the evidence points. And the reason why they think that's true is that they notice the universe is expanding at a constant rate, and actually it's increasing in speed. The rate of expansion is increasing, which is 
kind of contrary to intuition, you would think it would be slowing down as it as it wore out, but it's actually speeding up. We can talk about why that is in, a, in a, another question, but the fact that it's expanding outward tells us that at some point it's it had a beginning because it's like a ripple in a pond. You take your finger or a rock and you make a splash, and then it makes round circles come out. But there's you know a, a point of origin for that rippling. As the circles get bigger and bigger, it goes all the way across the pond. That's kind of what we're seeing with the universe. So there is a point of origin that started these ripples, and they know that. And, and all the equations trace back to it. And this is what Einstein's equations pointed to back in the early 20th century. And these are special relativity and general relativity. And you know, they really say that you know those equations have just been proven so deeply now that they're not really questionable. People. All, most all of science and all of classical physics supports them. They've been proven to like, you know, 12 decimal places or something ridiculous like that in mathematical proofs. So, that, you know, they, they really think that there's a beginning to time and space. Now, some of them are trying to get out of that now by saying it endlessly cycles, it, it expands, and then it destroys itself and it starts over again. But they're really kind of grasping at straws when they say that. But anyway, so they just trace it back. They just keep, you know, if it's getting bigger and bigger, you should be able to get it back and back and back and back and back and back. And they get to a, a point of infinite density, and they call that the singularity. So that is really, that's the, the beginning point of the universe. So the universe began to exist. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And that proves, you know, that there is something had to cause this to begin to exist. Now, if that something had to be outside of nature because nature was created within the universe. It would make it supernatural. So right there, just from basic scientific equations and math, you see that there had to be a supernatural cause to the universe. And even atheists, are aware of that implication. They don't like it. So they've been looking for all kinds of ways out of that. One of them is to say that there's an infinite number of universes. And, you know, this is where some of these really more wilder ideas in physics come from. Uh, and they're looking for ways to prove parallel universes. Now, I wouldn't be the first to point out, I think it was Owen Greenwich at Harvard, an astronomer, who said, if you can believe in you know, an infinite number of parallel universes, you really shouldn't have any problem at all believing in things like heaven and hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of harvest scientists, I mean, they recently published a paper recently saying there's evidence of another world beneath the earth, the crust that was pushed possibly during a catastrophic impact over, right. what they say, 4.5 billion years ago, you know, could be the fall of Lucifer. I mean, it's so interesting. And then this was preceded by another team of scientists saying subsurface ocean is three times bigger than all surface oceans combined. This kind of points to life inside the Earth. And if you really start to connect the dots, Chris, it seems like the Earth is a, for lack of a better word, a holding tank. Jude talks about it. Peter talks about it. Revelation talks about it. And then we see all this strange Earth activities increasing, Siberian holes, and then spiritual things as well. And now when you went to Sedona, now you had a little bit of an interesting experience. Right. So I want you to talk a little bit about what these Harvard scientists are saying and then springboard into some of your exper your very incredible experiences and what you saw there in Sedona. Sure. Well, yeah, I don't have any problem believing that there's lots of interesting and maybe even untold stuff under the earth. I mean, I don't think that's terribly controversial. Think about, you know, most of the surface of the earth is covered with water. 
And, you know, there's all kinds of deep sea creatures that maybe we had never even seen as well. Um, I had some fun in, in the book talking about Le- Leviathan and Behemoth. These are two monsters mentioned in Scripture. And, and some creationists have tried to make these into dinosaurs and things of that nature. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think they're actually dragons that the Bible talks about in a sort of a mythological sense. But you don't have to look at the word mythology as something that's necessarily false. Um, it's really more of a symbolic language that's kind of speaking to bigger religious ideas. But these dragons that are in the prophecies, you know, sometimes represent other things, like in Revelation, you have the, the, the dragon, and people think that it's different nations, and there's all kinds of theories about different um, cities and kings, and, you know, there's all kinds of ways of representing apocalyptic symbols, but they're not always just symbols. I, you know, I'm up into the idea that these are actually sea monsters that, that may even play a role in some of these cr- crazy judgments. I, and there's other prophecies, like at the end of when Jesus returns, they actually catch these things and cook them, and everyone eats them, at like a big picnic or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we might be having Leviathan, you know, on a stick <laughs> at some point. I don't know. But, yeah, there's actually a prophecy that, that talks about that, and uh, that, 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 that the Lord would slay the sea monster of chaos and you know that the evil will be vanquished and that yeah they'll basically just cook him up and we'll have a big barbecue and that'll be the end of that but um you, you what you're saying you know this idea of portals i really that was one of the first areas that i tried to research with this book and i started it and worked on it for six months before we really got going it it's really hard to find anything reliable you know, you're looking at all kinds of crazy stuff and all kinds of nonsense, and you don't know what to believe when you start looking into it. But one thing I found over and over again is that there are many, many areas that people think are portal areas, and they always have really weird stuff around them. And we're talking about cryptids, like creatures that, you know, like Bigfoot, um, creatures that are like dinosaurs, uh, just things that are just really weird and offbeat. UFO sightings, Thunderbird sightings, which is a really a huge pterodactyl-type um, bird with a massive wingspan. Uh, you know, one of the cases I looked at was um, you know the Mothman prophecies by John Keel. I've studied a lot of Keel's books, and he believed that in every state of the United States there were up to ten window areas, you know, that had these kind of um, interdimensional portals and that he thought that they opened up for a period of time and they would close up and maybe move around, things of that nature. In uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in the late 60s, for about two years, there seemed to be a portal opening and there was an increase in UFO sightings. People were seeing this Thunderbird flying around. Um, And then this Mothman creature started making appearances. Um, I found a pastor who was one of the first people to see it, and he thought it was the devil right away, and he identified it as demonic. But it did appear for about a year and a half after that, and then the silver bridge between Ohio and West Virginia collapsed into the ocean with about, I think, 60-something cars on the bridge at the time. It was during our Christmas shopping season, um, and so a lot of cars were stuck on the bridge, and it, it, it caved in. And, yes, people were killed, and people were injured. They said it was defective, but... It was, you know, all the Mothman stuff and all that seemed to stop right after the bridge collapsed. So it seemed to be centered on on that. Uh, Somehow the Mothman either caused it 
or some people try to make him into a hero and say that the Mothman was warning them. Um, and there's all kinds of lore about that. But the main idea is that some kind of portal seemed to have opened over that area because there was newspaper articles about UFO sightings you know, just during this period of time. And you see this is really common with these areas. And one of the ones that I found that you can read about on the Internet and some of the UFO magazines and whatnot is called the Bradshaw Ranch near Sedona, Arizona. So I went looking for one of these areas to go you know, visit it uh, myself to try to get a personal eyewitness account of what it's like. Now, we went to Sedona, which is kind of the new age capital of the universe right now, it seems like. Um, <laughs> it has uh, all these red rock formations that they call vortex energy areas. And uh, you know, vortex energy, you know, vortex is like a spiral, like a tornado or a dust devil. Or, but what they're talking about is some kind of spiritual energy. But they, it's interesting that they use the term vortex because it, it is really associated with the idea of interdimensional portals. Now, like I said, when I did that science uh, chapter, I discovered that, you know, they think that black holes, the gravity would rip you to shreds before you got even close to the event horizon of a black hole. So that kind of made the idea of traveling through one seem kind of impossible. But a scientist named Roy Carr discovered that if the black hole is spinning at a constant rate uh, where the, in, the inertia from the the spin would counteract the gravity and make it possible to, to go through the black hole. And they call these car black holes. Now, the thing that was really interesting that I mentioned is like in the book of Job, it says that God spoke to Job through a whirlwind. And, you know, that would be a vortex. It would be a spinning portal uh, from this other place. So is that an accident? I don't know. It, it really sounds interesting that, you know, science says that the black hole would be a spinning black hole and then, God speaks to Job, Scripture 2,000 years ago, from a whirlwind. And then, you know, you go to these areas where these people are meditating and doing all this stuff, and they call them vortexes. And, uh, well, and Elijah you know, was caught up in a whirlwind, too. That's interesting. That's right. It? Yeah, it's a very biblical notion. Elijah is called up by whirlwind. Um, you see this term, out of the whirlwind, several times throughout the in Scripture associated with God. And, you know, it's always also, he's like, Stuff like you know lightning and thunder and uh, weather anomalies sometimes. Um, you know the notion of some kind of portal opening from the heavenlies is definitely there. Well, what's really interesting, Chris, when I think of the Anasazi, the Sapapu, the reptilians, the six-toed giants, the gates, the portals, the stargates, the petroglyphs with all these depictions with fiery flying serpent deities, what's always fascinating is the oral traditions around the evil black magic type technologies they conjure up, whether it's pharmacia, metallurgy. That's a fascinating thing with all these high-level Satanists. They're always trying to bring these things in a man manifestation. There seems to be a connection to all of this, doesn't there? Yeah, there is. And um, it almost sounds like you read the whole book already because I, I found a Satanist down in... I um, haven't actually even got it yet. I ordered I it, but I think it's on back order or something. Right. It's not even out yet, I don't think. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> but it sounds like you have it because what your, your question is very prescient because there is a um, high-level Satanist named Daniel Minstrel. Man, Minstrel? Minstrel, Minstrel, yeah. I think. Yeah, and he... Um, he wrote a book, Traces of the Occult. That book has um, only been released in Brazil, I think. Um, and uh, I had to translate parts of it. He talked about one of the main objectives of the Satanists that he was involved in. This would be you know, back in the 90s, I think. 
um, was that they were trying to open up portals for lower-level demons to come up into our uh, space-time reality. The way they did that was through human blood sacrifice. He, he was one of the first people to really talk about that. And uh, he was thinking that they would have all the portals open that they needed uh, by around 2013. And that was, you know, but the thing is, his book was released around 2001 when he said that. So I don't know, you know, if that was all on schedule or not, but that's what he thought it was going to be back then. So that would be now. <laughs> you know, we'd be in it now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that happened the way he thought, but, you know, I thought it was really interesting the way he discussed portals and, and higher and lower uh, dimensions in that book. So I quoted him on that, and um, he thought the last ten, you know, were all that remained to be opened. But he said blood sacrifice, because that's the same thing the, the Mayans and the Aztecs yes. were doing. Um, they were offering blood to these plumed serpent deities uh, with the idea of opening up portals and whatnot. People um, think the Aztecs and the Mayans and the the Inca were so friendly, but they, it was actually a very demonic, bloody form of paganism. And what's really interesting is Aleister Crowley, one of the most notorious Satanists, in 1918 began a series of these magical workings with the intent to invoke certain intelligent physical manifestations and at least one was on record brought into manifestation via his little magical interdimensional portal and the entity called itself LAM L-A-M and it really bears an uncanny resemblance to alien greys and I think Steve Quayle in his book Little Creatures actually references it. I mean it seems like all these again high level Satanists and Luciferians are always trying to invoke these you know, what's behind the veil, and then you springboard into CERN, what they're doing, it, it's this common pattern, there's a theme here that runs through this, and it seems like they're trying to figure out what's on the other side of that veil, and I have a feeling they're not going to be really very happy to find out. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, I mean, there's a wide range of worldview in what you just said, they like that, you know, the Crowley would definitely be a supernaturalist, but, you know, sold out to the other side. Uh, and he's definitely just playing around with uh, demonic spirits and deceiving spirits. And, you know, just the way he ended his life kind of tells you what he was doing. Yeah. It didn't work out well. He died a penniless heroin addict, basically. Yeah, and right. He had been wealthy for most of his life, but he just squandered everything and basically died as a junkie with nothing. And uh, so all of that work he did really didn't amount to anything that, gave him any comfort in the end. Um, now, the guys at CERN are mostly atheists who have a very naturalistic worldview. Yes. And they think that they're just trying to find the truth and that we're superstitious and misguided. Uh, so when they dedicate that facility to the goddess Shiva of Hinduism, who within the Hindu trinity is really known as the destroyer. Now, they kind of paint it as she is a creator, but really the the sorts of things they put on the plaque of Shiva. I put it on my website the other day. They think that you know, it's an endless cycle of destruction and creation. And so they, they don't really... This is the idea that I was thinking of before where they're trying to get out of the implications of the Big Bang. They're actually trying to say that it's inflation and deflation where these bubbles just kind of bubble up and bubble down and it never ends. And really the universe is eternal because they don't like the implications of a beginning because beginnings require beginners. And they don't, <laughs> yeah, like, it kind uh, of evokes the thought that something started this whole show. Right, right. They don't want they don't want to deal with that notion, even though the equations all point to it. 
So they've really invoked this cyclical um, notion, you know, really just out of whole cloth. There's really no evidence for it. They just don't like the other one. What they're looking for, you know, is that singularity. What I was talking about, that point of infinite density, what they're trying to do is smash these particles and get down to the smallest thing they possibly can. And that's what, when they say they're trying to get back to the initial conditions of the Big Bang, that's what they mean. They're trying to break these particles down till they get to the point that you can't get any smaller. And that they would call the singularity probably and, and say that that would be like the, the singularity of the Big Bang. And, you know, they're invoking all kinds of crazy ideas now to get out of the Big Bang, like I said. And one of the scientists is named Lawrence Krauss. And you can find Krauss, K-R-A-U-S-S. He debates William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist, Dr. Craig, C-R-A-G. On, you can watch it on YouTube. They, they debate this idea of the Big Bang and the initial cause and all that. And I think Craig just shows you how silly the atheist position has become. Because at one point, Krauss takes off his dress shirt and reveals a T-shirt that says one plus one equals three <laughs> with really high values of one. You know, it's like, what? You know, Sounds so like that's really, Obama. Two plus two is five. <laughs> it's something like that. It's just kind of ridiculous. It just shows you the lengths they're willing to go to to get out of this uh, implication of a creator. Um, but like you said, the thing I was pointing to with you know, the Isaiah prophecy, we saw that it said giants are coming to fill my wrath in Babylon and that monsters and satyrs will dwell there. So you have these weird creatures, you have giants, you have a portal. Open you gates, you rulers. In Isaiah 13 and Septuagint. Did you go to like somewhere like Point Pleasant? You have these weird creatures... You know, you have UFOs, you have this Mothman creature who's like right. eight feet tall. So um, then, you know, I go to Sedona, Arizona. The same sorts of things at the Bradshaw Ranch. Um, I read a book called Merging Dimensions by Tom Dongo and Linda Bradshaw, who was living on the Bradshaw Ranch, married to Bob Bradshaw. And she sees Bigfoot, she sees flying saucers, she sees weird creatures, she sees things that look like dinosaurs. Her husband sees them, other people see them, um, orbs flying around in the air. Now, this is the thing that I actually caught on film, and they're actually so common, they're pretty easy to catch on film, it turns out, but I didn't really believe in them. Um, I've always, I've gotten pictures of orbs from people, and, you know, you read the debunkings of it, and I, I studied some parapsychology with a, you know, a real credentialed scientist, and they don't usually pay a lot of attention to those kind of photos because there's so many internet hoaxes and so many bad cameras and a lot of times the orb photos are reflections inside the camera um, or they're dust particles or uh, particles of moisture or things of that nature so I'd never really pay a lot of attention to them because it's just hard to prove that they're actually anything intelligent there or just a ball of light but um, we went out there and used two different high quality cameras so if it was a problem with one camera it would only show up on one camera so we ran video and still photography and we caught orbs flying around all over the place, and uh, they seemed to be intelligent. My uh, professional photographer with me, Chris Florio, actually saw an orb flying around with his naked eye flying behind me, and then we got it on film. Um, we have photos like before and after, like I'm standing there, and like one second later, there's a ball of light above my head. One second later, it's not there. You can follow the sequence of the photos, and then watch the video, and it, it's there. It shows up, but we don't know what it is. But... Chris also got video of one kind of flying in an evasive way. It kind of flies towards me, and then 
um, it flies up, changes direction, flies kind of out, and then it just sort of fades into non-existence. And I actually put that video, we have kind of like a close-up and an enhanced version so you can actually see it better. And it's up at the Facebook page for On the Path of the Immortals. So if you just Facebook On the Path of the Immortals and like that page, you'll be able to watch the video of that orb kind of come into our reality and then seemingly go back through the portal maybe and manifest away. So I don't know exactly what these are, but I suspect it's an energy form that maybe spirit beings travel in. So yeah, I don't know if the, you can identify what they are just because it's an orb. I have a feeling it could be, you know, the way that angels travel when they don't have bodies. Um, perhaps other kinds of spirit beings as well. Wow. Like our guide would have told us that those were um, the ghosts of Indians buried out in the desert. That's what they. <laughs> that's what they think they are. I don't know exactly what they are, but I think that they had some kind of energy form, and I suspect it's intelligent. So, you know, demons, angels, and whatnot perhaps can travel that way. Um, there's websites, there's a Christian um, named uh, Joy, Joey Pinkney, and she has a website showing all kinds of orbs in worship services, and she thinks they're angels. Yeah. So... Now, I don't know. I'm not claiming to have any authority on that, because I just don't know. But I have seen them in a context I would definitely say was demonic. I've seen these photos in worship services, and I've seen them with faces inside the, inside the orb that really looks like eyes and things. It really, really, really does. And wow. uh, you know, I don't know what to make of them, but I think that you know, they're spirit beings. And like L.A. Marzulli in his um, documentary, Watchers One, they went to the Isetti Ranch, where that New Ager Stephen Greer promises people experiences with these things. Right. And it looks like one enters into somebody. Like it, the light ball just kind of hits the guy's yeah. head, and it, it just kind of likes it goes right into him. So we're wondering if that isn't the way they influence our thought life and tempt us and things of that nature. Maybe they do get in our heads literally um, in that way. Yeah, I don't know, but it sure looks like it. I'm not recommending that you try to interact with them. We just wanted to see if they were real. So all I would say is that it's definitely unidentified, so it does meet the definition of a UFO. So fascinating, your trip. And, and the problem is, I think, that people are talking a lot about end time prophecy, but no one is talking about the physical manifestations and horrors coming and there's a reason the scripture says men's hearts will fail them for fear. And this, Chris, is why your book is so timely. And I really think one of your most important writings. Folks, get this book. If you go to skywatchtv.com, there is an incredible $200 value bundle on for $39.95 for a limited time. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the program tonight. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And uh, we'll do it again sometime soon. Yes, let's do it again soon. Folks, that was Chris Putnam. His website is linked there at weekendvigilante.com. Get your copy. I've got mine ordered and I'm looking forward to reading it. And folks, pick up a copy for a teenager. This is a really great way to show teenagers and young people what's happening. Get them interested in something that is very not only interesting, but really proves that prophecy is unfolding around us and this is just a really good way to introduce the young people that the fact that the Bible is true, Jesus Christ is the way, the life, and the truth, all other roads are dead ends. So what's coming, you want to get right with God. So thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Good night, and God bless.